So we are here, Holy Week, the greatest week of the Christian year. We have brothers and sisters, hundreds of millions of our brothers and sisters will be celebrating this week. The good news that Jesus died on a cross, that we might have life, and then he rose again. It's an amazing week. And I, I hope that some of you will come or all of you will come to the Good Friday service as we remember the importance of that day. And then next Sunday as we gather here to celebrate the amazing news that Jesus is risen. But today is Palm Sunday as the, uh, our cedar boughs uh, resemble here. Um, the, the, in the first century, they would celebrate um, great victors coming into a city with palm branches. They'd wave them singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in many churches, too, they're also beginning a tradition called Passion Sunday, <clears throat> realizing that many of us, Sunday is the day when we hear, or we come and we hear the gospel. And um, so I'm interested in that as well. I feel called again to, to speak on the passion, on Jesus' crucifixion, and everything that means for us. So listen again to the story. It was that Friday morning, and the soldiers led Jesus out into the palace, that is, the Praetorium. And they gathered together the whole company of soldiers, and they put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Again and again, they hit him on the head. They struck him on the head with a stick, and they spit on him. They were calling out to him, King of the Jews. They would fall on their knees and they would pay homage to him. And after they had mocked him, they took off his purple robe and they put his own clothes back on him and they let him out to be crucified. Now there was a certain man from Cyrene, his name was Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. As he was passing by, coming in from the country, they forced him to take up his cross. They brought Jesus to the place that's called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, but he wouldn't take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, just like we heard in Psalm 22. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two bandits, two criminals with him, one on his left and one on his right. Those who were passing by hurled insults at him, wagging their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross. Save yourself. In the same way, the high priests and the teachers of the law, they were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also uh, insulted him. Hurled insults on top of him, heaped him on top. At the sixth hour, darkness covered the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi! Lama sabachthani! Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who were nearby, they heard him. And they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. A man ran and grabbed a sponge and filled it with, with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The centurion, when the centurion who stood before Jesus heard his cry and saw the way that he died, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Let us pray that we hear these words again this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, it is amazing what you have done. Lord, words barely even get at the humility we feel, the gratitude that we feel, the sorrow that we feel, the conviction. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to hear your word again this morning. That today, that this morning, in new ways, Lord, it would change our lives. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> As I've been listening to this passage, <clears throat> studying it and reflecting on it, I was thinking this idea, this Jesus is in a way hidden in plain sight. I mean, as we read it, we, we see and we know who he is, or we think we do at least. It's interesting, I was thinking of the ways uh, people have hid in plain sight. And one of them that came to mind was, uh, many of you know the superhero Superman and Clark Kent. Is, does that amaze anybody else that Superman can hide right in front of people with just a pair of glasses? Does anybody? I mean, does that seem strange to anybody else? I mean, glasses on, Clark Kent, glasses off, Superman, right? <clears throat> I think how amazing this is that people don't see it. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember Superman shows, but I don't really remember anybody saying, like, you know, I recognize you. I've seen you somewhere before. Like, I mean, he was world famous. He had saved the world, like, countless times. And people still didn't recognize him. I see the same way, the same thing happening in Jesus this Messiah that the people of Israel have been waiting for for centuries, hidden right in front of them. And I see how the Holy Spirit is working through Mark to show us who Jesus is. But it's interesting because Mark doesn't take an a, a essay and write, you know, ten reasons why Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He begins with a story. He tells us the story of who Jesus is. Not so much that he can tell us the facts about him, so, but so rather, rather that we would realize. Mark is telling us so that we would realize who Jesus is. And I hope this morning, as you hear this text, you are asking the same questions. Mark, Holy Spirit, who are we supposed to see Jesus here? How are we supposed to see him? 
How are we supposed to realize what he's done by hearing these words again? Well, like Superman hid as Clark Kent with, with uh, just a pair of reading glasses. I see the ways that Mark is trying to reveal Jesus to us by taking off the glasses, so to speak, by using a powerful tool in that time of, of irony. Irony is where you say one thing, well, it's complicated to explain irony, but you say one thing, but you mean another or you show another. It's interesting because Mark is the first gospel. Most uh, biblical scholars, they, they, they think that he was the first writer of the first gospel, that Matthew and Luke actually, it looks like they used Mark's gospel to write their gospels. <laughs> Somebody hungry? <laughs> um, but the, Mark's gospel was the first. And that um, it's been interesting because for centuries now, though, or like the last, maybe last hundred years, scholars have been looking at Mark and thinking, you know, Mark's kind of the most basic of the Gospels. And I think they've got it totally wrong. Some have even said, like, Mark has hardly any theology at all. It's just the basic bare-bones facts of, of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Mark's story, the Gospel that he's told us, is filled, it's brimming with theological import brimming with information, not only about the facts, but who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, it's true, it's different than, say, like Paul's letter to the church in Rome. That letter is a theological treatise that scholars have studied for centuries. But Mark is telling a story. And with all stories, he highlights some things and doesn't mention others. One thing he does highlight is the irony the ironies of this story. He doesn't just tell us who Jesus is. He doesn't go in point form. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the Savior. Rather, he tells us in a story who he is. Not just so that we get the information, but that we realize it as we read it. It's interesting, and it's not part of our passage this morning, but some of the ironies that happen in Mark's Gospel. One of the first ones during the Passion is, when Jesus is brought to trial before the high priest, before the whole Sanhedrin, Jesus is brought on trial before them, and it's a mockery of a trial. They have all these people coming up with testimonies, but none of them agree. It's all false testimony. It's all made up. Until finally the high priest stands before Jesus, and he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus finally answers, and he says, I, I am. Now, we've talked about that in numerous times. That Those are the words of Yahweh, the Lord God. Ego eimi, I, I am. I am the Son of God. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, there's all sorts of uh, background, Old Testament background that comes flooding forward that we don't have time to talk about this morning. But at this, the high priest knows what Jesus is saying. He hears Jesus. He realizes Jesus saying, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am God the Son. And at this, the high priest tears his robes and the whole trial is over and they start beating Jesus and they take him away to Pilate to be killed. And they do. They bring him to Pilate. And this is the other ironic place. This governor of Israel, this, this prefect who's there on behalf of Rome to keep everything in control, 
He brings Jesus before him. He says, so tell me, are you the king of the Jews? And it's interesting because in the Greek, they, they don't have the question mark. Actually, in the Greek, it says, you are the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you said. Jesus is king. Now, interpreters have, and I think rightly, rightly so, they put the question mark there to realize, have us realize that he's interrogating Jesus. But in his interrogation, he's also making a statement. The realization is that Jesus is king of Israel. So these are some of the ironies that are happening before we even get to the passage that we heard this morning. But the irony continues right through. I mean, think how ironic it is that these uh, Roman soldiers who have made their, their commitment to Caesar, they've committed their lives as soldiers to Rome, and here they are worshiping Jesus. Now granted, it's mocking. They think they're making fun of him. But they are the ones who look like buffoons. They think that they are making fun of this Jewish man when really Gentiles are gathering around Jesus and even though they do it in mock, they are worshiping him. Not only that, but Pilate writes this sign to hang on the cross. The written charge against him read, King of the Jews. Now Pilate did that to mock Jesus. And to poke fun at the Israel, at the people of Israel who, who were waiting for a Messiah, who were, who hated Rome and the ways that Rome treated them. But there's this irony about it. That Jesus is king. But then I started thinking about some of the ironies, some of the most important ironies for us. The first one is the irony of Savior. At the foot of the cross, as Jesus hangs there, dying, suffocating, people walk by, people pass by, wagging their heads and saying, so you, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from that cross, and here's the, here's the ironic part, save yourself. See, they, they, they couldn't see. It's like they were looking at Clark Kent with glasses on. They couldn't see. All they could figure out was save yourself. If you're so powerful, if you are really God and you really love other people, save yourself. The high priest said the same thing. The people who were supposed to know. The high priest and the teachers of the law, these are the people who who studied day and night the Torah, who were supposed to recognize the Messiah when he came. These are the ones who were saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. It's not that he couldn't save himself, it's that he wouldn't save himself. Jesus was not there to save himself, he was there to sacrifice himself to save us. That's the irony of this salvation. We've been studying the last few weeks, listening to John in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is described as the lamb who was slain. Jesus was crucified during the Passover. Part of the Passover festival is to sacrifice a lamb, to kill a lamb as a way of saving people, as as a sacrifice to the Lord God, remembering the Exodus when God had saved them. 
Jesus is this sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb, this new exodus. It's through his blood that we are made clean. It's through his sacrifice that we are saved. It's because he was alienated on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because Jesus was alienated that we have been reconciled. Now we can approach our Father in heaven in ways that we never could before. Jesus has done this, not just for each of us, but for the whole world. And it's true, there are still millions of people who refuse, who will not see it. But he did it for all of us. He sacrificed himself to save us. That's the first irony, is Savior. The second, ir- uh, second irony is that Jesus is king. This king of Israel. This king from the house of David. The king that Israel had been waiting for for centuries, praying for, hoping for. And here he is, the one who is returning people to God through repentance and a new covenant. It's interesting, the word king, Basileus, is used only seven times in reference to Jesus. All seven of them are right here in chapter 15. Mark is using tons of irony, laying it on pretty thick that we would see that not only is Jesus Savior, but he is also King, Lord. It's interesting, too, this idea of King and how Mark uses the whole gospel. Mark gathers up, and that's one of the things that's great about Mark. It's it's only uh, 16 chapters. You can read the whole thing, and all of it, all of the gospel, all of the things that Jesus taught, all the things he said, all the things that he did, all these things are gathered up and stuffed into the image of, of king, into a crown that is then here at chapter 15 placed on Jesus' head. We're meant to read everything, that, all of the gospel, the miracles that Jesus did, the people he healed, the things that he taught, the things that he said, all of that is pressed together in this image of king and then placed on his head here at the cross. That's the amazing thing with this cross. It's not what it seems. In the ancient world, crosses were a place of curse. They were a place where you killed rebels and insurrectionists. It's a place where you killed runaway slaves and people who were trying to overthrow the government. It was meant to be one of the most horrible ways of of killing someone, to make an example out of someone. In the ancient world, the cross meant that your, your uprising had failed. But in God's economy, the way God does things, the cross, it's not an execution, it's an exaltation. Jesus is lifted up as king. On the cross, he's lifted above, above the others as king still wearing the crown of thorns that they had put on his head. The sign above him still read King of the Jews. In this ironic way, in this way that is even still difficult to understand, Jesus is lifted up as king. And the cross is not defeat, but it is victory. 
on the cross, Jesus defeats sin. The sin, our sin, my sin. The stuff that we do against God, the stuff that we do against each other, it's all been defeated there. The one who knew no sin became sin so that those of us who were sinful might be set free, might be saved. Jesus gathered up all of our sin, the things that we do, the things that we've done, the things that we will do. He gathered it all in one place and he defeated it. The cross is not defeat, the cross is victory. But also Jesus didn't do that. He just Not only did he defeat our sin there, he defeated death there. The reality is that all of us at some point, our bodies fail. But death is no longer the end for us. We no longer go down to the dust and never return. Jesus died. And there's a saying that in Jesus' death, death stung itself to death. Death no longer is the last word for us. Because of Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, death, in some ways, it's the beginning of life in its fullest sense. Death is no longer the enemy that it once was. The cross is not defeat, it is victory. But it's not only the victory over sin and death, but it's also the, the victory over Satan himself. Because of our sin, we were separated from God. And Satan would use that to try and, to not only to wreck our lives, but not because he cared about us, but because he, he hated the Lord. He hated the Lord God. And he tried to do everything he could to destroy the thing that meant most to him, us. To tempt us away to poke at our anger or our rage or our envy, to try and get it to flare up so that we do things to each other. And you look at the world around us and look how successful he is. The horrible things that people do to each other. These children of God, these children that God loves, the ways that we, the horrible things that we do, killing each other, cheating each other, But on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. I don't know if any of you have seen The the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. It's a few years old now, but there's a scene right at the cross when Jesus dies. It cuts away to Satan in Hades, in Gehenna, in hell. And it shows him screaming in agony because he knows that he is lost. The cross is not defeat. It's victory. Victory over sin and death, and Satan. And it opens the door into a new creation. Jesus is the firstborn of this new creation. Our Lord and Savior opens this door that death no longer no longer the end for us, but in some ways the beginning of life in its fullest sense. But all of this comes together. This irony of Savior and this irony of King, all of it comes together in this last moment when Jesus cries out, and breathes his last. Mark tells us that the temple, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, for those of you who are uncertain of temple architecture, this curtain was the part that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. 
This is the, the curtain that separated the most holy place, the place where God, where they believed that God lived and dwelled. That it separated people from that because they believed that because God was holy and they were not, to be even near God in the Holy of Holies, you were likely to be just as likely to be killed as you were to get out of that room alive. Because of God's holiness, God's holiness cannot endure our unholiness. And so they had this whole thing. And Judaism in the time of Jesus had become so much about how unholy people were. It became so much about legalism, about following all these laws, not only the laws of the Torah, but the other hundreds, thousands that they had added on top of it. And when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now that's significant, right? The top, God's end, down. That wasn't somebody up on a ladder doing it. It was the Lord God who, who tore the curtain apart. Revealing to us that no longer is there separation between us and God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, everything he did on the cross, now we are reconciled to our Father in heaven. And then the, the centurion, the Roman guard, when he heard and when he saw the, way, the, the, the thing that Jesus cried in, the way that he died, he said, truly this man is the Son of God. That's a big deal for a Roman soldier, right? A Roman soldier who has committed himself to Caesar. In those days, Caesar was going around saying that he was the Son of God. And yet here he is, standing in front of Jesus, says, no, truly this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, this King of Israel, truly this man is the Son of God. A Gentile probably had no understanding of the, of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures, probably knew nothing about it. A Roman. And he says, this man is the Son of God. So one of the things I love about Luke, or sorry, about Mark's Gospel about the ways that he tells us the story. <clears throat> There's so much happening. I, this, this this vision of, of, of a whirlwind. Everything is swirling around here. The idea of Savior. The idea of King. The label of Son of God. The label Son of Man. Everything is swirling around in this moment, all around the word Messiah. The one that the people of God have been hoping for. A Savior. A King. And Mark doesn't tell us these things in a point-by-point, point, a bullet point. He doesn't tell us in a long theological treatise. He tells us in a story, a gospel. Because he doesn't just want to tell us who Jesus is. He wants us to hear the gospel again and realize who Jesus is. I wanted to, lead, or to read just the last bit of Psalm 22. Listen to these words again. All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen.